Hey, welcome to the Centre Podcast. We're a church based in Dural, Sydney, who love Jesus and want to share the message of hope that he brings for all people. We pray that you're blessed by this word and that it reveals God's love for you in a new way. Enjoy. John chapter 3 verses 1 to 15. Jesus teaches Nicodemus. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born again when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are an Israelite's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except for one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, guys. Such a good job at emceeing and doing a Bible reading. Um, we are going through a passage today, which I sort of alluded to in the pastor's desk, is a bit of a, I don't know, maybe a well-treaded passage. I think that, you know, it kind of comes before maybe the most famous Bible passage in the entire Bible, John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. But there's a lot of really interesting things that are going on in this passage, and I want to kind of unpack a few this morning. So let me just quickly pray for us, and we can get into today's message. Father God, we thank you that you came to earth as man to teach us your ways, to reveal truth in Scripture, which you had been orchestrating and planning since all the way back in Genesis and even Numbers. And God, we just pray this morning as we come to this passage this morning that we may come to it with fresh eyes, an expectant heart, and with your Holy Spirit to inspire us, to guide us, and to enact us into a closer likeness of existence that is mirroring you, Jesus. So just be with us now. Amen. So I've got a question for you to start, and I feel like most people are sitting next to one other person roughly, so feel free to turn around to the person next to you or in groups two or three. How would you describe Jesus's personality? What are like the core character traits 
that you think of when you think of the man, Jesus? What do you think of? I'll give you a couple of seconds just to think of that and chat to uh, the person next to you. I'm assuming because it's a long weekend, we might have a lot of people watching online. So feel free to put up in the comment section as well. What is the core character traits that you think of when you think of Jesus' personality? Give you a couple of seconds. What do we think of? Does any uh, brave person want to yell out some some answers? Faultless. Faultless. I like that. Faultless. What else do we think of? Passionate or compassionate? Compassionate? Love it. Compassionate, faultless. What else do we think of when we think of Jesus' personality? Love. Love, faultless, compassionate. I think this uh, this is the idea that we sort of have around Jesus, which are all correct and, and yeah, true. Um, but I think as I've been sort of journeying with this passage uh, last two weeks, I've been reflecting on an element of Jesus' personality that we don't speak about as much, which is his intelligence. Do we think that Jesus was smart, that he was clever, that he was shrewd in the way that he spoke to fellow religious leaders who tried to undermine him? Because there's a really interesting passage of Scripture in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, where Jesus is actually kind of referencing Deuteronomy 6.5, the Shema, this ancient prayer of the Israelites, where he says uh, in Luke 10.27, for example, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind. What's really interesting is in Deuteronomy 6.5, mind isn't actually in it. It's love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And yet all three of the synoptics record Jesus as adding this idea of mind. So this is obviously a really important thing for Jesus, that as we worship him, as we engage with God in relationship, as we walk out our faith, that it's not just something that we're doing with our hands and our hearts and our spirits, but there is an intellectual pursuit that Jesus is calling us to as well. And that's going to look very different for each person. But I think it's a very important thing to note. And more interestingly, in Matthew 10, 16, he goes one further when he's talking to his disciples. It's an interesting passage. He says, I am sending you out like sheep among wolves, so be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. Whew. It's an interesting thing to say to his disciples. Be as shrewd, be as sharp, be as smart, be as sort of streetwise as serpents and yet still as innocent as doves. He's not saying be like serpents in all ways, but in this one characteristic, the way that a serpent is sharp, be sharp as well. Be wise is what some other translations use that word for. And yet be as innocent as a dove. Because obviously... Jesus is smart, so he wouldn't equate himself to a serpent, the symbol of sin and shame and death and divorce from God. Or would he? Would he equate himself to a serpent? Because this, at first glance, can seem what he's saying to Nicodemus in John 3, 14 to 15. He is saying, just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life in him. 
So if Jesus is so smart, why in this moment, in this gospel, in this conversation with Nicodemus, is he equating himself to a symbol which all the way back in Genesis 3 and throughout Scripture, a serpent is the symbol of sin, of shame, of death, of divorce from God? What is going on here, Jesus? What is going on here? Well, let's take a backtrack for a second you know how like in all those 90s action comedies that starts with a big action sequence and things are blowing up and then it pauses and it's like how did I get here let me explain let's do one of those and go back to numbers 21 6 to 9 because this is the old testament passage which Jesus is referring to when he's talking to Nicodemus here and essentially what happens is the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt Moses has led them the Red Sea has been parted freed from their slavery in Egypt and they're now wandering in the wilderness and the Israelites have begun grumbling about the lack of water about the quality of food about the fact that the worship isn't good enough about the sermons being too long about the air conditioning being too hot they're grumbling about all of the things that is going on in their lives lives and God is not happy so he sends fiery serpents among the people and the serpents bite the Israelites so that many of the people of Israel died so the people came to Moses and said we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and against you intercede with the Lord that he will remove the serpents from us and Moses interceded for the people then the Lord said to Moses make a fiery serpent and put it on a flagpole and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live so Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on the flagpole and it came about that if a serpent bit someone and they looked at the bronze serpent they lived so Jesus is taking this Old Testament passage and he's exegeting it he's explaining it he's unpacking it to Nicodemus this wizened religious leader and teacher now, I'm going to ask a quick question. Who, who likes snakes? Who gets excited when they see a snake? Yeah, I, I think that there are some outliers. Okay, Isabel, you're the one outlier here today. I know that there's a few people who aren't here today who have serpents in their house. But, you know, I think for the most part, the common consensus is we don't love snakes. We don't want to see snakes around. We don't want to be near snakes. We don't want to have to deal with snakes. They're not the most attractive thing, are they? There's quite a distaste for snakes. I think justifiably so. It's something which I was able to witness in very real time two Fridays ago when we were in our Friday meeting at the centre and we were praying, we were sharing about our God moments and then suddenly we hear a Alfred Hitchcock style blood curdling scream come from down the hallway and Craig Glasby, Mr Action Man himself, gets up and goes straight down and we were met with quite an interesting sight in the printer room. Can we cut to the video?
There we go. Phil Mitterbein. The center's answer to Moses, getting the serpent up on the pole to save us all from the tyranny, which was the snake. See, it's really, really interesting because I think that Jesus' teaching here is actually being intentionally difficult for Nicodemus. Why am I saying that? Well, Jesus could have equated himself to anything in this moment as he's speaking to Nicodemus. I mean, even in John's gospel alone, we're given beautiful comparisons of Jesus being the bread of life, being the light of the world, being the good shepherd, the true vine. And yet Jesus chooses a difficult teaching in this moment for Nicodemus. Why does he do this? Well, I think actually John 3.1 has some really interesting insight, which is very easy to just glance over, which is now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, the Jewish ruling council was the political powerhouse of Israel, where the Sadducees, who were not the Pharisees, the other religious elder group within Israel, would meet together. They would sort of rub palms with the Roman authorities. They had money. They had influence. They had power. Meanwhile, the Pharisees were a group who were a bit more devoted to a vow of poverty, to teaching the scripture faithfully, to being more of a member of the community in an elder sense, rather than in a political, powerful patronage way. And yet Nicodemus is this rare occurrence of a Pharisee who is part of the Jewish council. He's kind of the best of both worlds. And some commentators have used this word that he is the pinnacle Jew who now comes to Jesus as a representative, not just of the Pharisees, not just as of the Sadducees, but of all of Israel. And he comes to Jesus in a way that on face value seems pretty tame, pretty timid, pretty mild. But what we actually need to understand here is that Nicodemus and Jesus in this passage are being painted as two heads of different parties who are coming up and verbally sparring against one another. Fraser, I thought I'd have the clicker today. So the next six slides are going to come at you fast and loose, but let's see how we do. So instead of Nicodemus thinking that Jesus is Elmo teaching him his ABCs, he's more actually viewing Jesus as an opponent at a Comedy Central roast battle. Instead of viewing Jesus more like, you know, Mr. Keating from Dead Poets Society, who's teaching him this wisdom and unpacking these beautiful texts in ways he's never understood before, for, he's more viewing Jesus as an insolent audience member in a Q&A panel while he's up at the desk kind of shutting down this guy from a place of authority. Instead of viewing Jesus as this expert giving a TEDx talk, he's more viewing Jesus as this political opponent who through verbal sparring, through arguing in a very poetic and specific type of verbiage, is going to undermine him, show him that Jesus's way is false. And once we start to understand that these two men aren't just having a happy conversation, but rather having what some commentators call social challenge dialogue, it completely changes our understanding of what's actually going on in this passage. Because throughout this passage, between verses 1 and 15, Nicodemus at some point realizes that he's no longer just sitting across the table from a man. He's sitting across the table from the son of man, from the son of God, from God incarnate. 
And we even see this if we go to John 3, 1 to 4 in the very opening passage, this statement that Nicodemus opens with. He says in verse 2 to Jesus, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. On the surface, this sounds really complimentary, right? But what Nicodemus is actually doing is he's being over-exaggeratory in the way that he is lauding Jesus falsely to sort of try to undermine all of these claims that Jesus is making about himself. It's what scholars are calling combative hyperbole, this idea that it's an intentional swipe at Jesus' claims for who he is. So Jesus then, in turn, responds to Nicodemus in the same format, in social challenge dialogue, and he does it Specifically, one sort of rhetorical device, one sort of tool that he uses in his speech that Jesus uses to kind of fire back at Nicodemus is homonyms, which are essentially words, single words, which have two different meanings that are intentionally used at the same time to try to undermine Nicodemus. Essentially, if you say a sentence and it means two completely but true things at the same time, it forces your opponent to choose which of those two points to argue against and also is projecting that you know much more about this topic that you're talking about than the person who is on the other side of the table. And the first one we see is in the phrase born again. If we go to the next slide, the word again or in the Greek anothen is this word that in most NIVs has a little footnote to it because anothen, to be born anothen, to be born again, also means to be born from above. See, in a single phrase, Jesus is talking about this need for somebody to enter the kingdom of God, needs to be born again, needs to give their life to Christ, give their life to God, needs to put their old life aside. But they're also talking about, he's also talking about a spiritual renewal through the spirit that will have to happen, to both be born again through baptism, but to be born from above through the Holy Spirit. I promise it's the only nerdy quote from a commentary I'm going to use this morning. But Edward Clink, I think, puts it really well, where he says, the exploitation of divergent meanings of a single word, using one word that has two different meanings, is a common, even necessary part of a social challenge dialogue. But Jesus is not just playing dialogue games. He's not just playing Wordle with Nicodemus for the sake of it. It's intentional what he's doing. And his use of again and from above, anothen, for example, corresponds directly to the attack initiated by Nicodemus. And we see this further in John 3, 5 to 10. He uses born anothen, both born again and born above. But then he uses this other word, this other word, pneuma, which some of us will know means both the literal wind, the very physical breeze that blows on our face, but also spirit. And he uses this word pneuma both in wind and spirit to further emphasize this point that it's not just about a physical, there's also a spiritual element. It's not just being born again through water, it's being born again through the spirit from above. And finally... He uses this final homonym, this final double meaning in John 3, 14 to 15, where Jesus says, Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that everyone who believes will have eternal life. And lifted up has a really interesting double meaning. And it starts to point towards the point that Jesus is making about his own upcoming crucifixion. Because lifted up throughout John's gospel is connected to glorification, is connected to exaltation as a king, 
but it's also connected to the suffering servant imagery that we see in the book of Isaiah. If we see in Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, Isaiah keeps on using this language of being lifted up. See, my servant whacked wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But then in this exaltation, in this being lifted up, he will also pour out his life unto death and will be numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession. He was a representative for the sinners. Peter in Acts 2 kind of unpacks this really simply when he says, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. It is this dual meaning that both as Jesus is being exalted and lifted up physically on a cross, he's also being exalted and lifted up as the Messiah, as the king, not just of Israel, not just of the world, but of heaven and earth. So, Jesus has come at Nicodemus three times over with these double meanings, with this combative, challenge dialogue. So once we get to this image of the serpent being lifted up, what, what part is Jesus playing in this analogy? Is he the bronze serpent? Is he the flagpole itself that's holding the bronze serpent? Is he a new Moses? Well, as we've already seen throughout this passage, the answer to all three is yes. He is all three of those things. And I want to quickly just show you now, in, for example, John 1.29, John the Baptist, the other John in John's gospel, points to Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist is recognizing that Jesus is a figure who is going to die, who is going to take on death and take on sin to save God's people from sin and death. I love how Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus isn't just becoming a symbol of death and shame and divorce from God on the cross. He is actually embodying that. He is not just a symbol. He is becoming sin on that cross. He is becoming death on that cross. He is becoming separation from God. He is becoming the shame that he bears for us. So is he the bronze serpent? Yes. But he's also the flagpole. Because again, in Isaiah eleven twelve, we see this idea of a banner being raised up is one that the people set their eyes on and are united. Isaiah eleven twelve, he will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. And now Jesus takes it one step further. And he says, I'm not just going to, when I'm lifted up, unify all the people of Judah, the exiles of the chosen tribe of Israel, I'm going to bring together the exiles of all nations. He says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So is he the bronze serpent? Yes. Is he the flagpole? Yes. Is he a new Moses? Also, yes. Because in John 1.27, John the apostle writes, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And in Luke 24, 27, it says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus started to explain to these two disciples on the road to Emmaus what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself, explaining that through Jesus, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled. So when we come back to this picture of Jesus chatting to Nicodemus, 
What we see is Nicodemus as this esteemed religious elder, kind of the perfect Israelite representative, a foot in both camps of both the Pharisees and the Jewish council, coming to him as a representative who you would think would have all the answers, who you would think would understand Scripture to a T. But the image that the Apostle John gives is a man fumbling in the dark towards Jesus. John makes it very clear throughout his gospel. He uses these analogies of light and darkness, that Jesus is the light and darkness is sin, is evil, is misunderstanding. And Nicodemus comes in the depth of night to Jesus to receive this teaching and to be illuminated, not just in his mind, but in his heart. And in his hands, because what we see at the end of the Gospel of John is Nicodemus, a man who has come face to face with not just a great teacher, but with God. In John 19, 38 to 39, we see later Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus, who has now been crucified in this Gospel. And now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. And John reminds you, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night is now coming to Jesus' crucified body during the day. And Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds, which estimates for today's sort of monetary value would be between $150,000 and $200,000. Like, this is a pretty massive declaration of faith that Nicodemus is making to a crucified Jesus who hasn't yet resurrected. Like, Nicodemus gets it. He's putting his faith in something which hasn't yet completely been fulfilled because Jesus is still dead at this point. He has not seen the other side of a resurrected Jesus. And yet here is Nicodemus recognising that this man is not just greater than Moses. He is the greatest teacher that the world had ever seen. And so this phrase that he uses back in John 3 of rabbi, teacher, ironically, mockingly, now becomes a very real title which he's bestowing on Jesus with hundreds and thousands of dollars of libation, of myrrh, of aloe. I wonder when we think of the great teachers of our secular world today. I feel like we are swamped with pop physicists and psychologists and philosophers. And I think it's so easy to get swept up in the intelligentsia, in the wonderful, intelligent things that these people say and start to follow them on YouTube, on podcasts, on mailing lists. Start to see them as the teachers who are going to shed light in the darkness. Start to see them as the people who will bring true hope and true life. But Nicodemus recognised that there was only one person who could truly be called rabbi, only one person who could truly be called teacher. And... Recognising Jesus as rabbi didn't just mean sitting underneath his teaching, his wisdom, his profound knowledge. It also meant following him. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you were not just kind, were not just loving, were not just faultless, were not just compassionate, but Jesus, that you are 
the wisdom and word of God made flesh. That Jesus, you are smarter, you are wiser, you are shrewder than we could ever hope to be. So Jesus, this morning, we humbly recognize you as our rabbi, not just as a wise teacher whose wisdom we want to sit under, but as a savior, as a king that we want to follow. Because Jesus, as you were exalted and lifted up on that cross, you were glorified. And the fulfillment of scripture from the very beginning of your story was made known that you are the savior, that you are the king, that you are wisdom personified. Lord, I just pray for us this morning as we live in a time and a place where there are so many lofty ideas, there is so much information which seems like infallible, faultless wisdom that God, we could continue to remember that just like Nicodemus who came fumbling in the darkness of night, prideful of his knowledge, prideful of his wisdom. God, I pray this morning we could be humbled once more and remember that Jesus, you are the ultimate wisdom. You are the ultimate word made flesh. And we want to follow you because it's through you that we are freed from death, from shame, from sin from a broken relationship with God. Jesus, help us to follow you more faithfully and truly each day, hungering after your word and your wisdom and being filled so it could pour out of us as a river of living water to bless others. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Don't forget to rate and subscribe to help others discover this channel. Check out the description if you want to find out more or get in touch with us at the Centre Dural. But in the meantime, praying for God's hand over you as you continue to step into everything Jesus has in store for your life. Be blessed.